my name is Jeff Barrows. I, my background is I'm an OBGYN, practice in private practice for a number of years. Uh, Lord called me out of uh, private practice in about 1999. I worked with Christian Medical Dental Association with uh, Coimia MEI uh, f- for a number of years until about 2005. During that work, I became aware of the whole issue of human trafficking. Prior to 2004, I did not know and never heard of human trafficking. Uh, Once I began to look into it and study it, I I felt the Lord call me into that work, which initially involved uh, a lot of research into the health consequences of human trafficking. I worked with the State Department's Trafficking in Persons Office and uh, prepared a report for them every year on health consequences and then uh, began to move into the whole domestic side of sex trafficking, and, and in 2008, I started an organization called Grace Haven, which I'll talk about at the end. Um, so that's a little bit of my background. Uh, this talk really arises out of the fact that as people become aware of the whole issue of human trafficking, they have uh, a good natural response of what can I do. So I'm going to assume you've got a good basic knowledge of human trafficking. That's not the purpose of this particular talk. The purpose of this talk is, is what can anybody, specifically healthcare providers, do if they want to get more involved in this movement. And I would say it is a movement that is uh, that the Lord is bringing about across the country and uh, in large measure with young people, at college level especially. So... That's what I'm going to try and cover and leave a little bit of time for questions. So I've entitled it Becoming an Abolitionist. And uh, rather than asking the question like, what can I do? I've actually turned the question around and asked, what is it going to take for us to abolish human trafficking, modern human slavery? And this is what most people think think of when they think about human slavery. They think of a picture like this. Um, Africans enchained, completely out in the open. During a time it was legal, acceptable. Um, In fact, like many of you, until about 2004, if you had said, well, where is slavery happening in the United States? I might have said, well, maybe there's a few isolated places in Africa where slavery is happening. Uh, Yet, when you begin to look at human trafficking, we realize that it has a completely different face today. That is, right here, is the the face of human trafficking today. Sex trafficking on the streets with young girls, labor trafficking with children around the world, a completely different face. But actually, there are more slaves in the world today than there were during the Civil War times. In fact, the transatlantic slave trade. 13 million slaves got on ships in Africa. 9 million got off in the United States. 4 million died in transit. Today, as we are talking about the issue, estimates are that 27 million people are enslaved across the world. In comparison to 12 million over three, 400 years. So the numbers are much greater right now. I like this quote. The world is a dangerous place not because of those who do evil, but because of those who look on and do nothing. It's 
surprising person, Albert Einstein. When I first read this quote, I said, that's got to be a mistake. Albert Einstein said that? And he did. I had the uh, other one that didn't have a battery. It wasn't working. So there are two of these. Am I got the wrong one on? There's that one, and there's this one. So I took a 50-50 chance, got the wrong one. It's confusing, so let me switch over. Yeah, there's two of them. Well, there are two of them. This is for recording. Yep, it looks exactly like that one. Was there not one with a lapel? There was. That didn't have a battery. Somebody took it oh, to try and get a battery, yep. So this kind of sums up the fact that if we're ever going to abolish human trafficking, abolish slavery, especially in our lifetime, it's going to take everybody's involvement. So I turn the question around when people kind of ask, well, can I do anything to help in the abolition movement to not only can you, but you should be doing something. There are lots of different levels of engagement in this whole issue. And we'll talk about some of those today. Once I get mic'd up. Thank you. It will save my voice. Thank you. Obviously, several things need to happen. And again, I'm approaching it not so much from what can people do, but what is it that needs to occur if we're going to have complete abolition of human trafficking? The first thing that needs to occur is that every single person must have an understanding of what human trafficking is and exactly what goes on with trafficking. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of William Wilberforce. Uh, what a great inspiration. It took him 20 years as a member of parliament to finally make the slave trade illegal in the British empires. Now, one of the major things that it took was educating the other parliamentarians, the House of Lords, and the people of England about the horrors of the slave traffic and all the slaves and how they were put into ships and literally packed in there and how many died. Most, at that time, most of the average citizens of the British Empire had no concept what was really happening with the slave trade. We have a similar situation today. We have got to make everyone aware that this is happening all around us, how horrific it is, in order for any real change to occur. And when I talk about everyone, I'm talking about everyone from junior high on. Now, why did I pick junior high school? It goes back to my earlier topic today about domestic minor sex trafficking. The average age of getting into domestic minor sex trafficking is 12 years old. If we're going to talk, start talking to girls that are going to be at risk of being trafficked themselves, we have to start in junior high, maybe even a little younger, before they get to age 12. But certainly we have to start educating all of our students, all of our children from junior high on through high school, college, and as adults. 
And as I've lifted there, they need to know that human trafficking happens. They need to know where and how it happens. They need to know the various types of trafficking. What is labor trafficking? What is sex trafficking? What is domestic minor sex trafficking? They need to know what it looks like, how to identify it, and they need to know what they can do if they suspect someone is at risk or is being trafficked. And as we get into junior high schools, you can understand that this is not just awareness, this is actually prevention. If we have 100 to 300,000 American youth that are currently being trafficked in the United States, we've got literally that number, then we've got to be getting into the junior high schools so that we can get to where these girls are and get to them before the traffickers do. That's a lot of work. Now, what's that going to take? That's a lot of people talking. Um, you know, those of us that are very active in the movement, we can do our share in talking and coming to meetings like this, but we literally have to have hundreds of thousands of people talking about this issue, talking to churches, civic groups, other students, you know, high school students talking to their classes, junior high stu students talking to their classes, getting the teachers involved. We need to have college students talking to their classmates raising the awareness. Then we need to get into the professional groups. Medical care. I mean, if you were at my talk earlier today, I talked about the fact that there are really four groups that are likely to encounter trafficking victims. Law enforcement, health care, clergy, and teachers. We need to really get into those professional groups. So we need a lot of people talking. We need a lot of people writing. Letters to the editor, writing on blogs. How many of you are on Twitter? You know, if you got a Twitter, just mention something about human trafficking. Facebook, all the Internet. I mean, we don't have any excuse today for getting the word out about this issue with all kinds of different mechanisms that use the Internet. We need to get radio stations involved, whatever other media, newspapers, magazines, I mean, I'm not going to be able to have all the time to list the possibilities, but you can begin to get the idea. This is critical, and anybody can do this. Publishing. Uh, it's a little different in my mind. I mean, you're actively ongoing. This is an ongoing effort. You, you create websites that are specifically geared towards trafficking. You create blogs that are specifically geared towards trafficking. You, you keep track of news releases that are in your area about trafficking. You could put it on Facebook. So it's one step beyond just getting a blog out there about trafficking. It's the next step is creating a, a blog that specializes in trafficking. Create short stories, dramas. Use the dramas to get into churches. And I put down question marks. I'm not a very creative person. I mean, there are lots of ideas that I know a lot of you young people can come up with that, are, that I haven't even thought about. But getting the word out in, in uh, various ways. One of my favorite things as an as a executive director of a nonprofit is fundraising. Fundraising does two things. Number one, it raises awareness. Gets people aware of what's going on in a particular issue. Because when you do a fundraiser, you've got to talk about 
what it is that you're raising the funds for. And what does that do? That raises awareness. And the other nice thing it does is that when you're doing a fundraiser for Gracehaven, it gets us money, money that we need to get open. So I love fundraisers. And I have a lot of people that come to us at Gracehaven and they say, what can we do for you? And I say, you can do a fundraiser because it does two things. It raises awareness, it gets people involved, and it also gets us funds. And, you know, it obviously doesn't have to be Gracehaven. I can tell you that every organization that's working on the front lines with trafficking victims is in desperate need of funds. So if you're from another part of the country and you want to get connected in, you can get connected with that organization and you tell them, I want to start doing fundraising, they're going to love you because that's exactly what they need. So what's really required in order to, to do raising awareness? You have to have a basic knowledge of the issue. Because okay, people are going to ask questions. So it takes a little bit of time for you to do some research about international trafficking, domestic trafficking. What is the difference? You need to do the research. What is the trafficking scenario in your particular area? What are the resources in your particular area? Because those are common questions that come up and things that you need to know about. So there is a basic level of knowledge that's required. Not too tough to get. And then obviously the other real big key area is you have to have a passion for the cause. And I think it's a calling. Okay. Now, here's some books. A lot of people say, well, what books do you recommend? There's a listing of books. I like David Batstone's Not for Sale. It's a good general book about trafficking in general. A lot of good stories. A lot of it about international. Um, the Slave Next Door is a good uh, book about domestic side of trafficking by Kevin Bales, another well-known researcher in this area. Teresa Flores, who's on our staff at Gracehaven, has written her story. It's called The Slave Across the Street. Kevin Bales wasn't too happy with that particular title when he found out about it, but that's the way it goes. The Natasha's by Victor Malarek. That was a book that really hit me. That was uh, printed in 2004. Very powerful stories about tra sex trafficking out of Eastern Europe. Just really grips you. There are other books out there. I don't want to say that these are the only ones, but this is a good place to start. There are also websites that you can go to. Uh, the uh, Department of State, the, the Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons has excellent in information. Health and Human Services website has good information and good resources, by the way. And Justice Department, if you want to look at the number of, of uh, traffickers who have been found and convicted, you can get some of those statistics off of the Department of Justice website. So lots of information out there. I think if you read a few of those books, talk to the people in your area, you would be ready to begin doing raising awareness. And uh, I think, and I don't want to demean raising awareness at all. It's critical, it's important, and, it's not, and we're not going to get rid of trafficking until everyone knows about it. That's the first thing. The second is we need to address the demand side of things. And when I say the demand side of things, I'm talking about the purchase of sex. The term we use for men and women who buy sex, and by the way, the only people that buy sex are not men, there are women that buy sex, are Johns. That's the term. And the demand side talks about the fact that our culture is moving in many different ways towards the normalization of the purchase of sex. Now, what do I mean by that, and how is that happening? Well, I got a lot of different uh, 
different examples to give you, but here's another quote to think about. That which is tolerated by one generation is accepted by the next and embraced by the third. That which is tolerated by one generation is accepted by the second, embraced by the third. And just think about how many different issues the church is dealing with in our culture today that are just great examples of this. Going from being tolerated to accepted to embraced. And we have to fight that, especially when it comes to demand. A few examples. Wishing you Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a fantastic New Year. PimpMyBarbie.com okay? This is from a website. This is last year. I'm shuddering to think what's going to happen this year in 2010. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the song, It's Hard Out There for a Pimp. It's part of a, a movie that was called Hustle and Flow. And the, the basis of the movie was the difficulties this pimp was having in trying to make money on the street. Believe it or not, you get really feeling sorry for this trafficker. And this song won the 2005 Academy Award. It's hard out there for a pimp. When people think, well, it can't be possible that that pimping is going to be accepted in culture. It already is in Hollywood. When you give an award, an Academy Award, the highest award, to a song that talks about how tough it is out there for a pimp, we have some real problems. Video games. I've just thrown up one example. There are all kinds of pimping video games out there. There are all kinds of pimping websites. Pimp my ride, pimp this, pimp that. This is a Wii game. A lot of kids in junior high and high school actually like to use the term pimp. It's a favorite slang term now. And we don't understand how that gets into the mindset and it normalizes the whole issue of pimping. I actually prefer trafficking as a term. Um, here's keeppimpin.com. It's a free online game. You, on the game, you can slap your hose or you can kill your competition. I talked about this book in the, uh, my other session, The Instructional Guide, The Pimp Game, The Instructional Guide by Mickey Royale, who's a famous pimp, on Amazon. shows you exactly how you can recruit and control girls in domestic minor sex trafficking. Rated four stars on Amazon. This one I just found out about a few days ago. This is a pedophile's handbook. It's called The Pedophile's Guide to Love and Pleasure on Amazon Kindle. Found out about it, wrote Amazon and said, this is unacceptable. You've got a book about how to be a pedophile and you've got it on your website? They wrote back and said, we believe that restricting any type of publication is a form of censorship. There is a point. There is a limit as to what we ought to be publishing and putting out there. And I obviously think this has crossed that boundary. It's our society. That's just one aspect. We get into clothing. 
You can't see very well. Can't, I don't know if you can turn the light out in the middle. This is a, a little jumper for an infant. You can't see it in the background. And it has on the front, I mean, we're talking a, a six-month-old baby. It says Playground Pimp on it. Now, who's going to buy that piece of clothing? Or here's this one. This is a thong for a three-year-old. Who is going to, well, obviously, who's going to buy a thong for a three-year-old, but who makes a thong for a three-year-old? we got issues there. Um, one slide that I didn't include is I, I found in researching how much sex is used to sell clothing, and, of course, we all know about many different ads, but I found an ad where they were using a porn star to sell socks. And this is American Apparel was the company. They had a, a porn star posing in this very seductive, but she was selling socks. It's like, what have we come to? So what are the results of this? This is all demand. It's cool to be a pimp. And glorious or glamorous to be a hoe. Now, Julia Roberts and Pretty Women did a lot of damage to this whole issue. There are a lot of girls who got caught into the trade of prostitution because they thought the story of Julia Roberts and Pretty Women was true and exactly what would happen. That eventually she would find the man of her dreams and get married. And there is nothing that is further from the truth. And there's no movie that's done more damage to the whole cause because there are so many girls out there that, that get talked into prostitution and they think, I'll be like Julia Roberts. And obviously, I don't need to tell you about sexualizing girls at younger and younger ages. And it gets to the point where one of the results is that there's really nothing wrong with a man or a woman purchasing sex. There are a lot of people that are advocating to legalize prostitution. Uh, and, they're, and they're slowly getting stronger and stronger. Their voice is getting louder and louder. And it's a complete, absolute lie. I'll just tell you that all you have to do is look any place in the world, Amsterdam, one of the oldest places in the world where it's just legalized the purchase of sex, and you will find a horrific problem with trafficking in that city. Whenever and wherever prostitution is legalized, trafficking increases. That's been proven. So it's not even an argument. We can just go across the world and look at Germany and look at Australia and New Zealand and Amsterdam. It's, it's clearly not the right approach. So how do we demand, uh, address demand? Well, we have to be salt and light obviously, as the Lord calls us in the Gospels. Um, again, it involves speaking and writing and it beginning to be a little bit more specific, a little bit more on the advocacy side. Um, one area, I mean, I could spend a whole hour talking about the issue of pornography and tracking and trafficking, the association. They've done, done research with men who purchase sex, almost all men who purchase sex. Initially, it started with an addiction to pornography. It goes both ways because men who uh, engage and regularly view pornography end up buying sex. The other side is, is that a lot of young girls that are in trafficking scenarios are involved in the production of pornography. We've worked with a girl who was drugged and filmed. And she knows that she's got videos, all kinds of videos out there that she's only half there but it was pornography made of her, and then her trafficker sold it on the Internet. So the production of 
pornography is also involved with the whole trafficking scenario. So we have to work and write against pornography. And we've kind of let that issue go, quite honestly. There's been this proliferation of adult uh, establishments all across the country. I, I think the church, including myself, has been asleep. We've let these things come up, and they are seeds of trafficking, every one of them. Um, I would also point to the advocating for the arrest of Johns. 16% of men, 16% of men have purchased sex in their lifetime. That's a staggering number. Most of them did it while they were young men in college. Fortunately, less than 1% purchased sex on an ongoing basis, a recurrent basis, but still, 16% of men have purchased sex. And I do want to talk about the fact that women also buy sex. Just to, to bring up a study, there was a study done in New York City in 2008. And what they did is they found 250 boys and girls that were selling sex on the street. They were being trafficked. The researchers interviewed them. And they found that of the boys, 40% had sold sex to a woman, and 13% were making their full living off of women full-time. 11% of the girls had women purchasing sex for them. So it's not just a male purchasing thing. It is both male and female. Of course, male men are the worst offenders, but it's not just one sex. I would love to see more John schools created. A John school is a special court-established school where when a man is arrested for soliciting and it's his first arrest, he can be uh, given the option to go to this school and spend eight hours in a class learning about what prostitution is like. Typically, they will have women who have come out of prostitution come and talk about the trauma the horror, how they hate it, and they'll do that in lieu of frequently a jail sentence. And studies have shown that the uh, failure or the failure rate is only about 20%. In other words, 80% of the men that go through a John school never purchase sex again. It's one of the most effective ways to get men to realize how wrong it is to purchase sex. The problem is there are only about a handful of John schools across the country. And we need to get more of those established. There have been some places that have put billboards up. They'll actually give names of the men who buy sex. That's very effective. Get your name up on the billboard, especially if you're married and family. And it's interesting. You talk to these girls and you, and you ask them, what are the kinds of men who buy sex? And they'd say everyday men. Unfortunately, they'll often say doctors, dentists, lawyers, judges, Anybody. They have all kinds of customers. There's not a particular group that we might think of. And the other thing that we need to work on is elimination of adult establishments. I, 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 I don't know. How did they get to where they are today that you can't drive down the interstate without seeing some gentleman's club? I gave a talk uh, not long ago at Ashland College, and just right down the road was a gentleman's club. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, I was asleep along with everybody else. But... Uh, Every adult establishment is a place of prostitution. Every police officer knows that. Everybody that goes in there knows that. You see a, a girl stripping that you want to have sex with, you can have her that night if you're willing to pay enough money. And also they're involved with young girls. They have ways to get young girls, and so therefore they're involved in trafficking. I could spend an hour on that, so I'm going to stop there.
Um, third, we need to buy fair trade. This really addresses the issue of labor trafficking. And this is where Britain and Europe are actually ahead of us. This has become more of an issue for them for a longer period of time, that they have created a, a whole culture of buying fair trade. Now, when you buy fair trade, I'm going to be honest with you, you're going to pay $1 to $2 more, at least, depending on the cost of the product, 10% more. If you're buying a, a product for $10, like a bag of coffee, you buy it fair trade, it's going to be a dollar more. But you stop and think about it. How is it that we can buy a T-shirt or an article of clothing for $6 and have it shipped from overseas and still somebody making a profit? Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out somebody isn't getting paid in the production of that piece of clothing. And if we're really, truly going to do something about labor trafficking, the most effective way to do it is at the purchasing end. And that is we start looking for products that are fair trade. And by that I mean that there's been efforts made that along the chain of manufacture of that particular product, efforts have been made to make sure that everyone involved in employment has had been paid well and taken care of. That's difficult to do. And there are now stores in Britain that specialize in selling fair trade products, and they've been able to develop because enough people have demanded that those stores come along. Well, we've been slow here in the United States. There haven't been enough people who have said, I want to buy fair trade. Because a lot of us aren't willing, ready to make the step of looking a little harder for fair trade products, or hopefully they don't want to pay the extra one to two dollars to make sure that that product is produced by people who are paid well. But there are organizations that are beginning to, to look at this and develop. Uh, one of my favorites is FairTradeUSA.org. They actually audit transactions between U.S. companies offering fair trade certified products and international suppliers. They follow along the chain to make sure that they truly are good, solid fair trade products. Now, I can tell you that every one of us in here has bought things that have been produced by child trafficked labor. Every one of us. In fact, we all came to this building on tires that were made by child labor because all of the tires are manufactured in the United States from rubber that's, that's gotten out of Liberia and Sierra Leone with child labor. We don't have a choice right now. Uh, that's, that's the sad part. That's the frustrating part. 70% um, of, of diamonds that are purchased are good. 30% are child labor. Our cell phones have components in them that are produced out of child labor. A lot of our clothing still is produced, but there are things and areas that we can make an, a, 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 an advance on. And I'm sorry that this isn't showing up very well. big one is coffee. Most of you know that coffee... There's a percentage of it that is produced by traffic labor. So we need to be working real hard at buying coffee that is fair trade. And these are some of the companies that have been checked out by Fair Trade USA. Caribou Coffee is a good one. Pete's, Starbucks especially, their Cafe Estima. Seattle's Best Coffee works very hard to try and get fair trade products. Costco, Trader Joe's is a store 
that is beginning more and more to specialize in fair trade products. It requires us as customers to go in, look for the fair trade markings on the package, and be willing to pay the extra money. Chocolate is another area. I will tell you, Hershey's is terrible. Hershey's does not want to get on the fair trade bandwagon because they aren't seeing enough of us as customers caring about this issue. So as long as people are buying their chocolate, they don't really care how they get the cocoa. The cocoa comes out of Ivory Coast for child labor. And so I'd encourage you, don't buy Hershey's. It's not going to change until people suddenly stop and, and get them at the pocketbook. There are good stores that are, again, trying to list fair trade foods. Kroger, Safeway, Giant, Sam's Club, Whole Foods is another big one. And again, Trader Joe's is, is one I forgot to put on the list. So I could talk again about uh, fair trade. That's a huge issue. And that's something every one of us not only can we do, but we ought to be doing, spending a little bit more money, specifically looking for fair trade products and really going beyond and trying to create a market for fair trade. If we as consumers create a market for fair trade, then we'll have more and more stores that will then follow that market and develop. Fourth, specialized training to identify and help victims of trafficking. What I'm talking about is beyond raising awareness. I'm talking about going to the point where you take and you go to these four different professions that are likely to encounter victims of trafficking, and you train them so that they can recognize those victims. You train them so that they can know what to do once they find that victim. So that's another level of involvement. Uh, it's more in-depth than raising awareness. It ought to be specific to each specialty group. And it ought to be specific to the type of trafficking. So that takes a little bit more research. What is the trafficking going on in that area? How are they going to present to a teacher versus a, a healthcare professional versus clergy? That takes research. I think the training ought to be at a minimum one. You could actually expand it. Uh, up in Ohio, we've done law enforcement trainings that are about eight hours long. I think a, a pretty good training for healthcare would be about two to three hours long dealing specifically with different types of trafficking victims because they're going to present in different ways. I feel very strongly that the ideal way for the training to be done would be somebody that's a member of that profession. So law enforcement needs to be training law enforcement. Obviously, health care needs to be training health care because we know the mindset. We know uh, the, the way that the doctors, dentists, nurses, and so forth are thinking. This is going to require a higher level of commitment, more time, more expertise. Um, we got to identify factors that the patients may have. What are their health care problems? Again, very specific to the local trafficking scenario, which is very different around the country. There's going to, you know, overall, domestic minor sex trafficking is the most common, but you go down to Houston, the most common trafficking they're going to see in Houston, Texas, is going to be international from Central and South America, not domestic. So, and again, specific steps that healthcare professionals should take. When I and I've done a little bit of training with uh, with healthcare, the most likely healthcare providers to encounter victims of trafficking are those that are working in emergency rooms, outpatient clinics, OBGYN, pediatrics. Big area is abortion clinics. 
You heard my story about Jill this morning. You can see how abortion fits in. These girls become pregnant. What do they do? The trafficker wants them to have an abortion. So we need to be training abortion clinics. You know, even though we may be totally opposed to abortion, this is one way we can hopefully work together with them in getting them on board because I know they don't want to have any part in, in girls that are being trafficked. Free clinics is another uh, area, and I know there are a lot of people that are attending this meeting that are involved in free clinics. I hope that they can get training to see and recognize victims of trafficking because if you're a trafficker, you're going to want to bring somebody to that, a clinic, first of all, at the last minute when you absolutely have no other choice, and you're going to look for the place that you're least likely to be caught by somebody, and you want to save as much money. So a free clinic tends to fit some of those things. Legal advocacy, this is a whole area I could spend about 20 minutes on. Uh, 43 states in the U.S. have laws against trafficking. Um, Ohio is one of seven that does not. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do in Ohio, um, but it involves making sure that your state not only has laws, but that the laws are adequate, that they're good, tough laws. So depending on what state you're from, you want to do a little research on that. We need to make sure we increase the penalty for the Johns, the guys buying sex, but also the traffickers, the guys controlling the girls. So what are the requirements here? Obviously, you need more extensive knowledge. It's going to be the most common type of trafficking in that area, identifying the risk factors in that group, like health care. It would be health care problems. What are the local resources? Passion for the issue. And availability to train. I mean, it's not something that if you're going to do this, you're going to do it once a month, it's going to be something that you're going to be committing yourself to. But we need, we, I was just talking earlier at a meeting with, we need, we need people all over the country that are training all kinds of health care providers. I'd love to have an army raise up and get all the physicians, dentists, nurses trained all over the U.S. What an amazing thing. We would start finding these kids by the thousands. Fifth, what about direct outreach? Is there a way? I know a lot of people talk about, I want to work with the victims. There are a few ways that can you, you can do that. Um, I would really increase uh, look at working with at-risk youth. Why, you know, why not get to the kids before they're trafficked? And I talked earlier about the fact that the most common at-risk youth are the runaway youth. Every major city tends to have an organization that's dealing with runaways. Volunteer for that organization. There are a lot of them are looking for volunteers to come out and help in various ways to begin mentoring the youth and reaching out to them. Sexual abused youth, youth and foster children. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. There are also specific outreaches to strip clubs that I'll talk about, rape counseling. There are other ways you can get involved. But first of all, the outreach to runaways. I mean, I got this picture. I found this on the Internet. I mean, this you can just look at the tough edge on these girls' faces. This is what these girls really look and feel like. I mean, they've come from a background of abuse, and then they've been on the street. Every single person in authority has not only failed them, but actually used them. In order to survive, they have to develop a hard shell. So they're not the cuddly type that you think they might be. They got Their favorite language is four-letter words. That's about all they know, the F word. It's, uh, you know, we've had a, a few of these girls, my wife and I have had them in our home, and never has the F word flown around our house quite like that. You know, And that's the, that's the reality of what they're like. They're not cuddly. But we found that 
when you get through that hard shell, there's a little girl inside waiting to be released. One of the gals that we worked with, uh, I'll never forget, uh, after she'd been under our care and the care of somebody on our board, we went, went to visit her, and she's 22 years old. And uh, hard, the F word, this and that. She, we went up these stairs, and she showed my wife and I a coloring book that I would expect a six-year-old. And she said, see the picture I drew? And she'd colored in this picture. And I just was taken aback. Like, what do you say to an adult? But she was so proud of her picture in a coloring book. And that's because a lot of these girls have never had any childhood. It's, this, they've never experienced that. Her favorite movie is Disney cartoons because she never grew up with that. So it can be very rewarding, but initially my point is it's tough, tough work. You've got to be willing to put up with their language, put up with their tough exterior, and be patient because it, it took months to break through this gal. It's not going to happen in one or two, three visits. So there, there are ways you can do direct outreach, giving them food, soap. Um, you'll be tested. You'll definitely be tested. What does this require? Lots of training. You need to understand the mindset. You need to understand where these girls are coming from, their background. You need to understand trauma, what it takes to being triggered, post-traumatic stress disorder, I would, I would encourage you to go through one to two days of training before you get involved in this kind of outreach. But here's an area that I really like to focus on a lot in churches. That one of the other areas that we've, I think, missed in the church is the whole issue of foster care. I used to think I'd read the verses like in James 1.27 where it talks about looking after orphans and widows in their distress. I used to think, we don't have any orphans. They're all in, they're all in good care and foster care. I was so blind and so ignorant about the fact that most of the kids in foster care are doing terrible because 80% of foster parents are doing it for the money. And this is where the church has totally dropped it because what do we do? We have and we create empty nester Sunday school classes. They come together and they talk about their activities and what they're going to do the next week because their kids have grown and gone to college. And I'm thinking, hello, we've got all these thousands of kids out there that would love to have parents, and you've proven yourself as a parent. You've got experience as a parent. Become a foster parent. That's a huge way, because those are the girls and boys that are at risk of being trafficked, those in the foster care system. I would not recommend dealing with these girls unless your home is empty. Don't do it with kids that are younger, because they'll become sexual abusers. But if you've got an empty, empty home, and you've got time and a desire to commit to these kids, what a great way to have an impact on this whole issue. Um, they provide all the training for you. You don't have to use money as an excuse. They'll pay you a little bit of money for the kids. So there's, you know, there's no barriers that way. So that's a huge, huge area. You can do outreach to stri uh, strip clubs. I know of a, a group in Dayton that's been very successful with this. They'll actually have women that will go, and on Valentine's Day, for instance, they'll go to the club and they'll bring flowers in to the girls and the owners of the strip club really kind of want that because they know that it improves the mood of the dancers. And it's a way of getting a relationship with them. You don't want to uh, enable them in their work, but yet they need to realize that there are people outside that club that love them 
for things that are different than what they can do with their body. So um, you can go from forming relationships to begin uh, a friendship and and perhaps even helping them. So uh, there are some of these outreaches that are are sprouting up around the country. Uh, Other outreaches, going to truck stops. A lot of girls are trafficked in truck stops, putting signs in the back of the bathroom stalls. There are groups that do that with phone numbers that they can call uh, if they are trafficked. Uh, Rest areas, restaurants. Uh, there's a group that I, I work with in Columbus. We'll do uh, occasionally do an outreach to the street uh, workers uh, late at night. And uh, I'll be the driver, and we have a couple of gals in the van, and they'll go out and they'll give them a, a package of uh, hygiene items and food and just give them a hug. Uh, it's amazing how easy it is to spot these, these women at 1, 2 in the morning. You've got a woman 1 in the morning standing on a street corner. What's she there for? I had no idea until I got involved in this. They're they're all over every major city. So that's another outreach. I would do it in association with people that that know what they're they're talking about. And then direct care. I mean, in the healthcare profession, once these victims are found, they need healthcare. And uh, so you might connect up with a local coalition or organization and see if you are a healthcare professional in that area, see if you can offer your services pro bono. Uh, I'm sure they would love to take... Uh, take advantage of that for STI screening, any kind of uh, physical trauma they're getting and various treatment of diseases. So that, that's another way that physicians, dentists, and, and other healthcare professionals can get involved. So how would you do that? Do you want to contact the local Rescue and Historic Coalition located near you? You can find that information on the Health and Human Services website. Volunteer your services. Learn a little bit more about what is going on in your particular area. And then I want to finish up in a couple of minutes, talk about our work with Gracehaven. This is a study that was done in 2007. Back to the issue of domestic minor sex trafficking, we found that there are 100,000 to 300,000 girls being trafficked across the United States. And Health and Human Services, upon realizing that, thought, well, how many organizations are out there that are specializing in taking care of these girls? And they found four organizations total, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Atlanta, New York, total of about 45 beds for 100,000 girls. Not a real good ratio. So in 2008, I started Gracehaven. We're up in Ohio. We're a faith-based Christian nonprofit. This is the backside of of the house. Uh, We are creating, we're actually in the process of renovating a home to be a long-term rehabilitative shelter for these girls. While they're there in Gracehaven, they'll be able to get individual and group counseling. Um, They'll be able to continue their education. They'll be able to be safe and secure. We're keeping our location undisclosed for obvious reasons. Um, They'll be able to, the average girl gets into this with a fourth grade education when she's finally freed out of this. So they'll be able to work towards their high school diploma. Uh, They'll stay with us between somewhere between six and 24 months. A lot of factors will come into play and when we'll have them uh, leave the home, but there'll be uh, love for who they are, not what they can do, and obviously be, we'll have the love of Christ that we'll be sharing with them. So this is a picture of our renovation right now. This is what the house looks like. I just took these pictures a, a couple of weeks ago. That room back there used to be the master bedroom. It's going to become our office for the staff. Uh, it was a four-bedroom home. We're converting it into five bedrooms, four and a half baths. We added two baths to the house. 
Uh, we took a garage and closed it, and that's going to become our classroom. We have another extended garage that we're going to create into an exercise recreation room where they can, we're going to hang up one of these uh, things you can punch, the punching bag, so they can punch and get their frustrations out on that rather than each other. I think that's a little bit more healthy. Uh, hoping to have the renovation done by this coming March. And then uh, one thing we have to do as a licensed group home, we have to show financial stability, so we have to have in the bank our first six months of operating expenses, which I can tell you is a significant chunk of change, so we're raising funds for that. That's our website. There are some brochures that we passed around, and there's some sheets. If you want to get on our email list, uh, you can do that through the website, or there's some papers around back there, I think, that you can sign up to be on our email list. So i got a few minutes for questions. The medical field, there is no place that gets it. I, I, I'm actually probably the only one that's put together. I mean, uh, along with Catherine and I and Dan Burcue, there are three of us. I don't know of anybody else physician-wise that, that does it. Um, I, I did. I did. I'm glad you mentioned that. I did put a PowerPoint together, and it's on the CMDA website. And I think it's still on the website. For a while, we had it on the website for CME training, and you could get CME uh, hours out of it. But um, the last I knew, it's still up there. There's no place that's doing the training specifically. I would just say, you know, the hours of research about it. That that's what I did. I mean, I just read about it and read about it for about six months, and then I put together a curriculum and. Went from there. We're, work, we're working on developing more formal trainings and getting that across. We were just discussing that. Yeah, there's there's an organization called Doctors at War that we're also involved with. That uh, yeah, we're we got a lot a lot of ideas and and working on it. So yeah, they've got a, actually got a booth down in the exhibit hall. Yes. Well, first of all, anytime you're dealing with a minor, you're right. You have to have custody, so you have to work through the juvenile court system and children's services. And that's how custody then comes to the group home. That's how a regular group home would get temporary custody of a child in their care. But any, any state has licensing, and they're not going to have necessarily licensing for traffic victims. In Ohio, Grace Haven is just simply becoming licensed as a group home. But we're letting children's services around the state and the juvenile judges around the state know that we're specializing in traffic children. So it's part of it is relationship building with them. The other part is getting the license to operate as a group home within that particular state. And you can go to the laws. Almost all states have their laws now online, and you can specifically look at what the requirements are to become licensed as a group home if you're going to deal with minors. You don't need to do that if you're dealing with 18 and over. 
But if you're dealing with minors, then yes, you have to have be a licensed facility, and then the term is adjudicated. Those kids have to be adjudicated to your care through Children's Services or the juvenile justice system. Yes? You mentioned under uh, outreach for direct care to contact the Rescue and Restore Coalition. Who are they? That's a national uh, – the Health and Human Services back in about 2003 – decided to begin a campaign across the country to raise awareness. And so they started a rescue and restore campaign. So it originally came out of Health and Human Services. And it's on, I think it's rescueandrestore.either.org or .com. And you can get to their website. And so the goal of Health and Human Services was to start coalitions in major cities all across the country local uh, uh, grassroots efforts of people that would come up, come together to address, address the trafficking issues in their particular area. Yes? Um, do you know what percent of victims are you Don't know any inf good data on that at all. Um, and I don't know that anybody's even studied that. Good question, but... I better take – because I think there's – is there someone coming in at 3? Do I have to be out of here by 3? There is? Okay. I looked on the schedule. I thought there, there was a hand back here. Yes. Well, we aren't open. We are not open. Yeah. Um, we have, in spite of the fact of not being open, uh, because word got out about our work, we did have some adult 18 and over gals that came to us, and we've helped about five or six of those. Um, but we have not helped any minors because we don't have our license yet. Do you have a newsletter or a website? Or? Yeah, the website is gracehavenhouse.org. Gracehavenhouse.org. And I'll stick around for any other, because there is, I think, another session here, so I better kind of close this down and I'll stick.